I'm Indira Stewart. Welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast. Congratulations, Aotearoa. You've officially made it through the first week of the Level 4 lockdown. We've been asking you out there to send through your messages of support for your fellow Kiwis through RNZ's Vox Pop app. And we thought you might enjoy this one. Even though your neighbours are playing their music incredibly loudly all morning, we're going to get through this. <laughs> well done for being a very tolerant neighbour. Later in the show, we're going to ask Otago University epidemiologist Dr Patricia Priest about what life might look like on the other side of the lockdown. But first, let's get to the headlines. As of yesterday, there were 647 cases of COVID-19 in New Zealand, with 74 people now recovered. If you've been paying close attention to those numbers, you know that represents a small reduction in the number of cases. But the Director-General of Health, Ashley Bloomfield, says we shouldn't be getting excited just yet. I I have no sense that this is uh, a drop overall, and our expectation is that the number of cases will continue to increase. Uh, The number of cases may reflect that there were lower numbers of tests done on Sunday in particular, Uh, and that's what we're seeing come through. Our full expectation is that the number of cases will continue to increase over the coming seven to 10 days. Then our hope is they would start to decline, particularly if people keep doing as asked of them. Another reason those numbers are likely to rise is that the government has moved to boost coronavirus testing. Until now, the guidance was to only test people for COVID-19 if they had a link to overseas travel or to another confirmed case of the virus. Now that guidance has been updated to recommend testing anyone who has symptoms of the disease. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says increasing the number of tests is a critical part of the response to the virus. I want more tests. We've built the capacity for more tests. More tests will only help us get a better picture of the spread of COVID-19 in New Zealand. I'm not complacent here. Um, I don't sit on my laurels with any of the numbers we get. My belief is we need to know more, and my hope is we'll continue to get more information, not less. There's also been a change in guidance when it comes to personal protective equipment, or PPE. Many health workers outside of hospital, including home care workers, midwives and community health providers, have been worried about a lack of PPE, particularly face masks. Until recently, those masks were being reserved for the workers most likely to come into contact with COVID-19. But yesterday, Dr Ashley Bloomfield announced they would be broadening access, with 7 million extra masks being distributed around New Zealand. We're undertaking a process at the moment of releasing a large number of uh, masks from our national stocks out to our district health boards and they will be distributing in their regions masks to frontline health workers in a range of organisations including our home and community support workers uh, and disability support workers, uh, some NGO workers where they have face-to-face contact. We also want our frontline health workers to feel they can access PPE for when they want, they need to use it. Speaking of broader access, some good news. Yesterday, the government announced you can go shopping again. The bad news is it's strictly online only and sales are limited to certain essential goods like clothes, heaters, blankets and computer parts. 
Another announcement on shopping came through yesterday afternoon. Jacinda Ardern said the government has decided supermarkets will stay open on Good Friday, but they will still close on Easter Sunday as normal. Our decision was driven by the desire to strike a balance between the need for the workforce in our supermarkets to get a well-earned break and for supermarkets to restock, which has been an issue for many, catching up in what was unprecedented demand in our supermarkets across the country. But we also balanced that against the need of people to access supermarkets at this unprecedented time. In the end, the important issue for us was that we wanted to avoid people rushing to the supermarket if there were two days of closure, which would defeat the work everyone is doing to try and reduce people's contact with one another. Given supermarkets are often closed on Easter Sunday, it is important that employees know they still have the right to refuse to work that day. I'm sure that employers will act fairly with these requests and I have been told that the supermarkets have already advised us that employees will be able to volunteer to work on that day rather than being rostered on. I encourage everyone though at this time to consider the strain on supermarkets at present and to only shop for what you need as usual while ensuring of course you keep that physical distancing while you shop. And if I could make one more request, please be kind to the people who work there. They are doing an incredible service to us at present and they deserve nothing more, uh, nothing but our respect at this time. Yesterday also saw the first meeting of the Epidemic Response Committee. Now that's a special group of MPs from all parties with powers to question ministers and government officials. The committee is a way to maintain democratic scrutiny of the government without getting in the way of the need for quick, decisive action. Yesterday's meeting mostly involved questioning top health officials about the response to the outbreak. The committee will be meeting again today to quiz Finance Minister Grant Robertson about steps being taken to protect jobs and the economy from the virus. And finally, by now we should all know what the rules are around social distancing. But the head of civil defence, Sarah Stewart-Black, says some still aren't getting that message. People are congregating in groups and outdoor places such as parks and playgrounds, beaches and urban areas as well. Please don't, if you're outdoors, practice the physical distancing. Don't gather where others are. Please don't take your children to playgrounds and parks and schools. There are too many objects or surfaces potentially with the virus on them. And likewise, stay off any furniture or equipment in public places. And unfortunately, the Kiwi tradition of passing something over the fence to your neighbour is not advised either. As far as we've been told, the length of the lockdown is still for another three weeks at this stage. But the state of national emergency, which gives civil defence, police and government extra powers, has been extended for another seven days. Now that's different from the four-week lockdown New Zealand is currently in. The national state of emergency only lasts seven days and was put in place on Wednesday last week as New Zealand prepared to go into a level four alert. The state of emergency can be extended as many times as necessary throughout this lockdown. So we're at the end of week one and it's tempting to start looking toward the light at the end of the tunnel where we all get to emerge from our homes and resume life as normal. Well, unfortunately, that's probably not going to be how things work out. 
I asked Otago University epidemiologist Dr Patricia Priest what we should expect once we reach the end of the Level 4 lockdown. It's not at all likely that there'll be some sort of switch flicked and we'll all just trundle back to our normal lives. Uh, in terms of when we come out of it, it will be a matter of uh, watching the case numbers and uh, other aspects about how the pandemic's going in New Zealand that will trigger a decision to come out of level four. But the most likely thing is that we'll drop down to level three uh, if there's no increase in case numbers that becomes difficult to control, then that will give them some confidence to think about easing back down a little bit further. So we'll go down in stages, and I think there'll be the possibility that we might go down maybe three, two, and then go back up to three. But I think that the people who make those decisions will be being very careful to try to ensure that that doesn't happen, because obviously that's pretty disconcerting for everybody. Jacinda Ardern also has stated that uh, New Zealand could be coming out of lockdown lockdown on a region-by-region region basis. Once we get um, a much better sense of COVID-19 in our community, that we'll be able to move at least regions into lower alert levels, giving people back more freedoms, um, but also manage outbreaks as they come. At this stage, the virus is spreading in lots of different parts of the country. It's possible to imagine that there might be a region where it's either doesn't doesn't uh, increase much at all or is felt to be completely under control. The tricky bits about getting one region at a different level from, from another are going to be the practical aspects about people moving between regions and what that would mean. Uh, I mean, we don't really have the infrastructure for kind of physically shutting off different regions on the whole. So I guess it's a good idea to think that uh, it doesn't have to be the same across the country, but there'll be quite a lot of work to do about you know, how to define what a region is for something like that and, and how you would put boundaries around different levels. On a related note, we spoke earlier to a rural medical health specialist, Dr Gary Nixon, and he had suggested, even, even before we'd heard the Prime Minister say this, that perhaps the Ministry of Health should be releasing more regionally specific information on where cases are, are occurring. Uh, I think he, so he suggested that that would allow small regional communities to go into a kind of regional quarantine or regional isolation as we've just been discussing. If they're not affected by the virus, perhaps it's a way to protect some rural communities. Do you think that's something that we could see in the next couple of, next few weeks or months? They do have to be careful about privacy when making public numbers of people with diseases when the numbers are quite small. So if they were to say, you know, there's one person in some particular small town, then they're potentially breaching that person's um, right to privacy about their health conditions. Uh, if people in that small town, you know, have their suspicions about who's who's been sick recently. So that's probably partly why they're not giving such regionally detailed information at the moment. Are there any potential downsides to uh, isolating or quarantining different regions? I think the main downside is just how difficult it would be. I think that if you can imagine a small rural area, for example, that you're going to say, we're going to quarantine ourselves, we don't have any cases, we don't want anyone coming in with with the infection, so we're just going to sort of put a boundary around ourselves and, and, um, and look after ourselves, 
that's okay, but you have to have absolutely everybody on board because if the area around you is no longer uh, at level four, the massive temptation for people living there is going to be to go to the next town or to the big city to um, do stuff that you can't do when you're under quarantine, to go to shops that aren't open or uh, go to entertainment or whatever. And so the ability to maintain quarantine in a small region would actually be, I think, very difficult in practical terms. Let's talk about some of the ways that people are uh trying to protect themselves right now. We've had a number of questions about the value of masks. Now, I've heard that unless it's a proper high-quality surgical mask, it's not going to really offer any protection in terms of catching the virus. Does even a cloth mask offer any protection at all? Is it still better than nothing? And there was a recent interview with George Gao, head of the Chinese Centre for Disease Control, who told Science magazine that the big mistake in the US and Europe, in his opinion, was that people aren't wearing masks and so the virus transmitted really easily and really quickly as opposed to other countries perhaps like Japan or Korea, South Korea, where people wear masks and the cases were or the, trans, the rate of transmission was a lot lower. How effective are masks? There aren't real scientific tests of the effectiveness of masks in these situations. And it's not actually the case that countries that used masks have dramatically different trajectories from countries who didn't use masks when you take into account the other things that they were doing. Korea, for example, South Korea had a very big testing, tracing, quarantining contacts process, which is probably what meant that they got it under control. The cultural differences about mask wearing didn't protect people in Wuhan in that first period. So I think there are a few things about masks. The first thing is just to make the point uh, that unless there is absolutely unconstrained supply, then the really top protective masks, those N95 respirator masks, have to be prioritised to healthcare workers. It's not clear that masks are protective in people without symptoms, but I think a lot of people would agree that if you have symptoms, if you're coughing and sneezing, wearing a mask, it's not going to completely protect the people you're around, but it probably reduces the probability that you'd infect them. So to protect the other people around you, if you're coughing and sneezing, then uh, wearing a mask, if you can get one, is is helpful, but it's important that people realise that it's not completely protective, so it's not going to reduce the risk to zero. And I think one of the other things about masks, it sounds very straightforward and sensible and easy, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that goes along with wearing a mask, which includes touching your face a lot more. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can contaminate your fingers when you're taking a mask off because the mask's contaminated and then you have to make really sure you don't touch anything before you wash your hands and fiddling with a mask to try and get it to fit and so on can then mean that you're touching your face and touching your eyes and so on. So I I would say that if, if someone has symptoms and they want to reduce the probability that they'll infect people around them, then wearing a mask probably would help with that. But I don't think we're at a situation where we can 
really say that there's good scientific evidence that everybody wearing masks all the time will make a significant difference. We've also had quite a few people get in touch with very specific questions based on scientific papers that they've read. So lots of people are really trying to get the right information about coronavirus. One person was asking about a paper suggesting that the virus affects people differently based on blood type. Do you have any general advice to you know, people about accessing this kind of expert information? One of the things that's quite interesting about this uh, pandemic has been the rise of the use of what's called preprint servers. So when people do some research and write a paper, traditionally the public doesn't even get to see it or the public and other scientists don't get to see it until it's gone through a hopefully rigorous process of peer review by other scientists. But because of the need to, or the perceived need to get information out there quickly in the face of the pandemic, there are a lot of scientists who are writing uh, papers and posting them in places where people can find them, these preprint servers, before they've been properly peer reviewed. You know, you can see the you can see the desire to get information out there quickly because journals can be quite slow. But it does mean that there are papers out there on these servers which will not pass the peer review process and are not actually good sources of information. So I think although you can find that stuff by looking on the internet, I think it's important for lay people to really focus on the reputable sources like WHO, the American CDC, you know, our government's websites. The scientists of the world are definitely working incredibly hard to try and improve our understanding about the virus and how to manage it, how to treat it. Good quality science will get published in reputable journals and will be reflected on these reputable sites. Uh, and I think that for someone who isn't familiar with the scientific methods used and how to understand and critique them, just finding papers and looking at their apparent headline findings is risky if, you, if you're really looking for good quality information. Uh, Dr. Priest, we've reached the end of week one of lockdown. How are you feeling? It's been interesting, hasn't it? Um, we, my, I have two adult children who are here with us, and uh, we're very unused to all being together 24 hours a day, but we're managing so far. Today I, I got up and uh, went for a walk and got dressed in proper clothes and uh, pretended I was actually going to work, and I feel a lot better than I did yesterday when I was slobbing around in my jeans and T-shirt and just kind of, you know, it's it's a bit exhausting just being at home all day. <laughs> it's a lot more effort in some ways. I'm the head of a quite a large academic department and I do quite a lot of popping into people's offices or them popping into mine to resolve issues at work. Whereas now I have to write a well-constructed email or have a Zoom meeting. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a very different way of, of working. I think compared with the previous week when we were all incredibly kind of uncertain and anxious, it's quite good to have it, like, now we know what we're doing. It's kind of astonishing how quickly so many of us have adapted to this new normal. But this is still the early days. We're in this for the long haul. We need to look after ourselves, and we need to be kind and compassionate to one another, even to our neighbours who insist on blasting loud music all morning. Take care of yourselves. 
We'll be back with you tomorrow, but until then, kia haumaru, kia kaha. The Coronavirus Podcast is presented by me, Indira Stewart. It's produced by William Ray, Jesse Chang and Sonia Sly. Our sound engineer is Adrian Holley. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can subscribe to the Coronavirus Podcast anywhere and it's free. Just go to the podcast and series page at rnz.co.nz. And while you're there, why not check out some of RNZ's great non-coronavirus related podcasts. RNZ's Eating Fried Chicken in the Shower has a special episode talking to disaster psychologist Saab Johal. Of course, they aren't actually in a shower together for this episode. They're both at home maintaining their social distance. Thank you.